All right, we are in the book of First Peter. First Peter, if you're scrolling or turning near the back of the New Testament, a couple, few books from the end of the New Testament. Let me just mention while you're headed there, um, there are many, many good books um, on the topic of suffering that we're studying this month. A couple, and, and, and next week I'll try to remember, I, I meant to put these in the study guide and the notes, um, give you titles and authors, so if you want to grab them for yourself. But two in particular, um, Paul Tripp's Shelter in the Storm, uh, Shelter in the Time of Storm is a devotional, 52 devotions on Psalm 27. If you read Psalm 27, it's just David crying out for God's presence in the midst of um, threat from enemies and, and others from outside. So it, it, if you know Paul Tripp's writing, you know how wonderfully he distills the truths of God's word and applies them to your life. So this is a wonderful book, Shelter in the Time of Storm. And then God's Grace in Your Suffering by David Paulison. Um, David passed away last year, um, but was a man who understood suffering both as someone who had experienced it and who had counseled well throughout his life, many who had suffered, and is just a tremendously thoughtful writer. He takes the song, How Firm a Foundation, and, and kind of weaves that in as well, some of the lyrics from that, and, and but just helps with reminders of God's grace in your suffering. I am putting one copy here and one there and after service, Help yourself, whoever. You just can't cause anyone else to suffer in order to try to come up and get the book. Um, but those, those two are free, and, and um, whoever needs them, whoever you've got somebody that you're trying to help or serve that's suffering, um, hope that they're good resources for you. First, Peter. We're talking about suffering this month. Hopeful, suffering, exalting Christ together in seasons of pain. Um, aware that, that suffering is real. We talked about suffering last week, and terms of God's sovereignty in, in suffering, the fact that God is not detached from our, our suffering, that he is not helpless when we are in suffering, but that he ordains suffering as part of his work in us uh, for our good, for his glory, that he is at work through suffering. Uh, suffering, as we've said, can happen for various reasons. The, the simple fact that we live in a sin-cursed, fallen world leads to chaos and disease and natural disasters and, and all of the things that, that happen in this creation on account of sin. Uh, suffering can also happen because of our own sin, our own foolishness. We can all give testimony to when, when foolish things that we have done have caused consequences that have led to suffering as well. And then there's suffering that is caused by other people when we are the victims of someone else's evil. And that's what I want us to think about this morning is this topic of suffering unjustly. It, it's a broad category, oppression, abuse, slander, injustice, many other things that, that we experience at the hands of other people because of their sin, their evil. Now, I, I want to be really clear just up front to say I'm not lumping these all together as if they're equal in the degree of suffering that they inflict. I don't want to sound insensitive in that way by sort of putting these all in one category. The pain that happens when someone whispers gossip about you and slanders you is different from the pain experienced by someone who has been through sexual abuse, and that is different from the pain of someone who has been judged and discriminated against because of their skin color. There, there's, there's different magnitudes, if you will, different experiences of that kind of suffering, and yet they all fall under this broad category of suffering that is a result of other people's actions, other people's judgments, speech, 
whatever it might be, suffering brought about by others' evil. And in that broad sense, this is a kind of suffering that we can all relate to. Uh, regardless of where you are on that continuum, you've, you've experienced at some point or another mocking or insult or abuse or injustice or something from other people. And there is application for all of us here as, as we look through Scripture this morning, and we'll kind of bounce through several different places in 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it's important that you see who he's addressed this letter to because suffering is part of the context of the letter. It says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Greetings, elect exiles of the dispersion. That's not a title we put on very many of our emails or that we, we are familiar with, elect exiles of the dispersion, but it is clearly a meaningful title. He's not simply saying brethren or fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He says first, elect, that word elect means chosen, something that has been selected for a purposeful selection. It is some kind of election. And he, he, if you go on through verse two, he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the setting apart of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, a very Trinitarian response. But he says, there is election that is for the purposes of God. There is election in the terms of God choosing and, and saving, but he's also by using this term elect in this context of saying exiles of the dispersion, it's also a reminder of exactly what we said last week, and that is God is sovereign in this. Your circumstances are not outside of the realm of God's sovereignty. So, so where you are right now, even that is, is in the good work of God, who chooses, who is sovereign. And then he says, exiles of the dispersion. Depending on your translation, you may have exiles, strangers, foreigners, aliens. It is a Greek word, paraepidemos. Let, let me give you just what the word breaks up into, because I think it's a really helpful word picture. Epidemos is demos people. We talk about demographics, groups of people. Epi is among. And, and, and the picture that the word is trying to give is... Uh, not just blending in with people, but, but something unique among the people. It's, it's sort of the person who stands out, if you will, in the crowd. It's kind of, for those of you with, with kids, and maybe this goes back a few years, but it's the where's Waldo sort of thing. You know, where's, where's the little guy with the, with the hat on who, who stands out uniquely in this whole crowd of people? And that's what Epidemos has the idea of. A stranger is someone who is in and amongst the people but there's something about that person that stands out. And the, the prefix para in, in front of it means alongside, among the people. And by alongside, what it's saying is you're here. You're not just passing through, but this is a, a stranger who is in this particular place, who has settled down in this place amongst these people. So he's saying that as exile, you are that stranger, if you will, a stranger or alien of the dispersion. Yeah, VSV, the dispersion. Dispersion is capitalized. That's translators choosing to do that. That wasn't Peter, where he makes it, the, the translators make it into a title. And, and the reason they do that is because it would have been so familiar, the, the diaspora to, to Jewish readers, the dispersion, they would have understood that term because of their history. You go back into Old Testament history, and the Jewish people understood what it meant to be dispersed, to be exiles. Um, 722 BC, the Assyrians come into the, the northern kingdom of Israel, 
And in raiding it, they take the, the people from the land, the Jewish people from the northern kingdom, remove them from their land, and don't simply hold them in captivity, but they scatter them. They, they put them in other countries. Understand, it's much easier for us with our smartphones and our Google Translate to survive in other nations, but, but they were putting people into places now where you couldn't speak the language and you didn't know the culture and you were now a complete alien and had to start all over again. The, the idea was to weaken their, their enemy nations. And so they would relocate people from other nations then into Israel. And that's why when we get to the time of Jesus and, and there is this despising by the Jews of Samaritans, it is because of this perception that they are all mixed race people who have been sort of shuffled in and out of that land by virtue of the historic exile that took place. 586 BC, the Babylonians come into the southern kingdom. They remove the Jews by captivity, eventually let them return. But the, the point is, the Jewish people understood what it meant to experience dispersion, to be scattered, to be spread abroad. And Peter now is applying this term to New Testament believers. Historians tell us Peter wrote this somewhere around the middle 60s A.D., 64, 65, somewhere in there A.D., which is right about the time when the Roman government begins to officially sanction the persecution of Christians under the Emperor Nero, who was Emperor Rome at that point. That is not the start of persecution. It has been going on in pockets and in various areas and, and, and scattered throughout the empire. Christians have been being persecuted for the previous decades, this now just adds sort of official sanction to it. Um, Acts chapter 8 tells us early on in church history, you have the story of the uh, martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and Acts 8 begins and says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, there's the verb of that word for dispersion, scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. You follow Jesus Christ, in the midst of a Jewish culture that is already hostile to Jesus. They've already crucified Jesus, so there's already hostility there. And you follow him in the midst of a Greek-Roman culture that believes in multiple deities that is rife with immorality and violence, and you be a follower of Christ, believing in one true God in the midst of that, and you will be persecuted. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 8, there's that description of them being scattered. So Christians were routinely ostracized and slandered and mistreated and, and scattered and, and lost things and were taken from their homes. So much so that when, when Nero does, when the great fire of Rome in, in 64 AD, when he does blame the Christians for it, there's no great outcry of, whoa, why are we blaming the Christians? You know, they're such good people and, and they do such wonderful things. Why would we blame them? There's not a problem at all for the empire to, to get in behind here on that and say, yeah, that's right. It probably is the Christians. The, the historian and, and Roman Senator Tacitus writes, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the population. And, and, and as he's saying, living, he's a contemporary of Nero, he's living in that era, and he's saying, Nero picked somebody that was already hated, 
It was an easy target for Nero because they already had disdain for Christians because of their lifestyles and their beliefs and the things that they would preach and hold on to. The idea that they would reject idol worship, that they would reject sacrificing to to gods, the multiple gods, the idea that they would speak out against adultery or immorality or violence. That That was all stuff that just rang in the ears of these people and they hated them for it. And so when Nero selects them, It's an easy mark at this point. So if you put yourself now in the place of Peter's audience, the things we read here, this is an audience that that understands unjust suffering. They've they've experienced it. Many of them have already been ostracized in one way or another from parts of their community. Some have lost their home. They have slanderous remarks made about their worship, about their form of worship. Um, they, They are sometimes subject to the threat of occasional mob violence, All of that feeds into when he says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion, to you, my brothers and sisters, who understand what it is to have lost things and to be scattered because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, turn into chapter 2, verse 11. I want to pick a couple verses here out of chapter 2. We'll we'll actually read several, but just two to start with. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. And here's the exile's term again. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How are we to respond to unjust suffering, not not just persecution as is the case here, but how are we to respond when we suffer because of someone else's evil? I want to give you six principles from here, from out of 1 Peter, not not only these verses, but a couple of others to help us think about this. I, I, I just want to put one caveat up front on this topic of suffering, particularly when it's unjust suffering, embracing the inevitability of suffering caused by others does not mean embracing evil. I want to make a distinction there that I think is important in, in our time and in the Christian culture, that embracing the inevitability of suffering at the hands of others is not the same as in some way embracing the evil. The Christian church in America for the last number of years has been engaged in a discussion, in a dialogue, if you will, about how parts of the Christian church, parts of the professing Christian church, have failed to respond to the areas of sexual abuse, have failed to respond to victims, have failed to listen to truth and to push for justice in cases. And and in fact, how some professing Christians have even engaged in and used leadership roles and engaged in sexual abuse. And there's something that with the culture has become a a point of discussion and, and heartbreaking every time we see these stories that come out of Christian churches of cases of sexual abuse or of looking the other way. Over decades, there have been ton of discussions about how parts of the Christian church sinfully dealt with slavery and, and, and sinfully dealt with generations of ethnic discrimination and bigotry that followed slavery. And the Christian church has had this sort of ongoing conversation about not only being poor about it in history, but in current day, battling still racism within the life of the Christian church. I say all that because the, the fact that suffering due to other people's sins, whether it's discrimination, whether it's abuse, whether it's oppression or slander, 
is inevitable. The fact that it's inevitable is never an excuse to make light of such suffering as if we're somehow saying, that's just life in a fallen world, so toughen up and walk the Christian walk. You know, just sorry, that's the way it is. We need to be a compassionate people. We need to be a people who care about justice, who love mercy. And, and, and so um, the words of Jesus, I think, sometimes get pulled out of context on this topic. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And there's a temptation to read into that, that there's just sort of this victimization mentality that we just sort of lay down like doormats. And, and we need to know, first of all, that in Matthew 5, Jesus is going through a series of, you, you've heard that, but I say that, and he goes through five of them in there, and all of them are, you've heard teachers tell you this, I say this, Here, here's the truth. And in particular on this one, what he's talking about is private retaliation and revenge. And he's saying, you've heard it said that if someone does something to you, you do right back to them, and, and maybe even harder if you can. If somebody hurts you, you, you hurt them back, you strike back, you inflict harm as has been done to you, or worse. Jesus was, was not in this context. He, he's correcting that, but he's not saying that the, the corrective is then therefore to be doormats who allow evil to prevail. He is condemning the idea of returning evil for evil. Scripture is very clear when it comes to how we relate to evil in the world. I've, I've included these scriptures, and they'll be on the, the, the slide as well, but they're in the sermon notes in one of the questions, and we won't take the time to look at them all this morning at all, but um, as it pertains to evil in the world, as best we can, God's people are to flee evil. Uh, Proverbs speaks to that, to, to do what we can to try to flee evil. We are to expose evil. Ephesians talks about exposing the fruitless deeds of darkness. And we are to expect that our governing authorities will apply a standard of justice and will prosecute evil, will punish evil. All of those are, are biblical responses, if you will, in, in, in general to evil in the world. Um, saying all that just to, to make sure that none of this comes across as if it's some kind of light take on, the, on suffering that you get as a course of injustice or abuse or anything like that. So let's talk about these principles for responding to suffering caused by evildoers. First one comes out of verse 11 that we just read, chapter 2, verse 11. Know that you are loved. This, this may sound obvious, but he starts verse 11 by saying, beloved. That's not a throwaway term. That's not just a, I, I, need, I need to call you something, and this is, I've used brothers, and you know, so what's, what do I say next? And so I'll say, Beloved. That is a term that is rich with meaning, that for the apostles, they use it often in their letters. They had heard God the Father speak of the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the, this is the object of my affection. They knew the teaching of Jesus. He, he taught his disciples about loving one another and, in fact, said to them, the distinctive mark of what it is to be a follower of mine is your love for one another. When people see you actively sacrificing for one another, that's what will demonstrate who I am. It's that, that model of love. And so when writers like Peter use beloved, it, it really has two things in mind. There's, there's his own affection 
for his readers. He's calling them beloved because he loves them and he cares for them. But he's also calling them beloved because they are objects of God's love. He is reminding them of who they are. We are a beloved people. Ephesians speaks of that. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are children who are loved by God, regardless of your circumstances. And, and regardless of people treating you with hate, the, the reminder of scripture here is know that you are loved. You are loved by your creator, by your savior, and you are loved by the body of Christ. That's, that's probably the weak link in those. We don't always do that perfectly. We don't always do that well, but that's what we are called to do is to love one another in suffering and be alongside one another demonstrating that love by our, our, our being close in those times. But certainly know even when the body of Christ is imperfect in that, God is not. God loves you. He cares for you. He is not abandoning you. We belong to him. We are objects of God's love. That's why Romans 8 makes the point that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And, and included in that description is unjust suffering as well. That nothing can separate us. Not even pain inflicted by others, not even harm intended by others can separate us from the love of God. So we are beloved by God and we should be loved by fellow believers. Secondly, know that you are exiles. Rehearsing a little bit of what we've said already, we get, when we see a term like exile, we get how it applies to those believers in the first century because it was, it was hard and, and, and they were scattered from their homes and, and we don't generally experience, at least yet, that kind of persecution for our faith. And so sometimes it's hard for us to get hold of that exiles idea, the fact that we are strangers here. And yet scripture is clear. This is not just Peter speaking to a first century audience. This applies to us as well. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we are exiles. We are strangers in this world. We should stand out in the crowd because we are different, if even that means suffering for that. The writer of Hebrews used the same term exiles. He's just talked about the faith of Noah and Abraham and Sarah, and he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. In other words, they're, they're looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of a Savior. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. From childhood on, most of us try to fit in. Even, even those of us who are bold enough to think that we're trying to be different usually are being different with according to what is currently different in the culture. We're, 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 still, we're still trying in a way to make sure that our appearance, our conversation, our responses to things, the shows that we watch, the movies we watch, the music we listen to, that it, 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 sort of, it sort of fits in so that in, in every conversation we're in, somebody's not thinking, Hey, that person's just so weird. They're so different. We, we don't like that generally. We kind of want to be accepted. We want to plug in. God calls us exiles. He says that you are exiles. You are sojourners. You are strangers. And it's because of, of, of what Peter is talking about, what Peter knew, and what the writer of Hebrews explains, and that is this world is not our home. This is not ultimately 
what we have been made for. It is important, and we are here for a reason, and we are to be good stewards, and we've been put in bodies to experience life on earth and to live well in it, but... Ultimately, our souls have been made for eternity with our Creator, to have communion with Him forever, to be in His presence. That's, that's ultimately where our destiny is. When I die, that grave is not my final resting place, even though we use that language. My resting place ultimately is in the presence of my Lord and Savior. It's before Jesus Christ. Hebrews said of those who died in faith, it said they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You and I are made for relationship with our creator such that while we live here and it matters and we are to be good stewards and we are to serve God here and love others, this is still where we sojourn. And we must remember that we are exiles here. We are strangers here. And the world does and, and frankly should look at us different and we should stand out because this is not our ultimate home. And, and that will make us targets. It's what made it easy for Nero to, to choose the Christians. And it's the same sort of attitudes today that I should not be surprised at abuse and injustice and rejection and oppression. We are different. Our lives are not supposed to be wrapped around fleshly pleasures and worldly accolades and material gain. All of the things that, that drive people of the world, pleasure, gain, and praise... That's not supposed to drive us. We are to be driven by the love of God and serving God and following God, pleasing him even to the point that it may displease our fellow man. And we may become targets because of that, rejected because of that, because this is not our home. To that end, this is not paradise. And, and, and so I, I say that in particular as we, we walk into an election year and we will hear again and again how... Vote for me, and, and we will have peace and prosperity, and everything will be good. I don't care what party you're talking about. That is the, the tagline of every candidate. If you vote for me, I'm going to make it so good for you. And the fact is, Romans 8 says, This creation is in bondage to corruption and groaning for its redemption, which will not come until the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean to, to disengage from the system, and I'm not saying don't vote, don't read any more into that. It, it's just the reality of what we know as believers. This is not paradise. It, it, it's only going to be when, when the Lord creates new heavens and a new earth. And so we need to live out righteousness and pursue righteousness and know that the evil of this world should leave us longing for heaven, longing for the glories of that which lies before us, and we are exiles here. Next point really goes with that, and it is, on account of that, know that you will be targeted for evil, rejection, slander, and suffering. If you look at verse 12 again, Peter says, keep your, 2.12, Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evil, when they speak against you as evildoers, and just catch that phrase, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, Notice Peter didn't say, if they speak against you. He says, when. So there is certainty that they will speak against you. And, and look at what he says there. They will speak against you as evildoers. That, the, the grammar there is not, he doesn't mean they are being evil when they are speaking against you. He's saying, that's what they will accuse you of. They will speak against you, labeling you as evildoers, which is 
mind-blowing on one level when you stop and go, wait, the people who are seeking to live in righteousness and holiness are now being described by the culture as evildoers, and yet it's not all that shocking when we think of the world saying, well, actually, in your view, you are hateful, and you are narrow-minded, and you are intolerant, and you are bigoted. Those exact things are being said about believing Christians because of what we believe to be true, what we believe God's word says. And so Peter's saying, when they speak against you as evildoers, he's describing what we are seeing today just as he saw in the first century. As Peter describes here, the very practice that he mentioned in verse 11 of abstaining from the passions of the flesh is the same kind of thing that will, will promote hostility. It, it, it's okay if you Christians choose to believe what you believe about sex, but listen, don't, don't preach it. Don't tell us that we're somehow wrong for that. Don't tell us that we can't have sex whenever and with whomever we wish and, and without consequences. Don't, don't preach that stuff. We, we don't want to hear your narrow worldview. It's okay if you want to worship one God. Just don't tell us that because this is the, this is the culture. And this is what the culture embraces. And, and the growing message today is no different than it was in Peter's day. It, it, essentially, your, your belief in Jesus, that's nice. Keep it to yourself. You know, don't, don't, don't push it on me in any way. Even when, when we seek to love and, and speak out of love, we are, we are now being accused of, of pushing, of proselytizing in some cruel way because we're speaking what we believe is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A court in Great Britain just last month said essentially that. There was a, a, a lady who publicly gave views that opposed transgenderism, and the, the court in Great Britain ruled against her and said, she, she got fired from her job because of it, and ruled against her and said her language was, these are all quotes from the, the ruling, offensive, exclusionary, absolutist, and not worthy of respect in a democratic society. You understand that that is saying, Lot, we can have lots of views, yours don't count. You, you, yours not, are not even worthy of, of receiving respect in a, in a free society. And the, the court essentially was applauding the institution that fired her for holding these views. We are rapidly on a path that will label Bible teaching, if not Bible speaking, as criminal hate speech. And, and we need to know that not only may we be oppressed, treated unjustly, abused in some way because of it, but it likely will. As Peter says, when they speak evil against you, when they speak against you as evildoers, I should say, we should expect such suffering. Jesus, Jesus warned his disciples, Paul does, Peter does, they all say this, this is inevitable, know it, expect it. The primary concern though of God's word is not necessarily how we avoid it as much as it is on how do you respond to it. And that's the, the fourth principle. Know that your response matters to God. I, I want to back back out again. I don't, I don't want this to just be about persecution of Christians by the, the culture. This is about suffering unjustly at the hands of others, suffering evil at the hands of others. Um, and, and God's word speaks to all who've been hurt by abuse and slander and mocking and discrimination. So when it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, when he says that in verse 12, it's present tense, it's ongoing. Keep on keeping your conduct honorable. Your response constantly matters before God. Even in the midst of these circumstances, as they're speaking against you, keep your conduct 
honorable. Suffering at the hands of others is not permission to strike back in vengeance. It's not a permission for evil on our part in response. When we are the victims, the, the, the permission there is not that we can then find some way to, to win back, to get evil back. We need to guard our hearts and our response. If you read on in chapter 2, look at verse 18. 1 Peter 2.18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, it, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. You've sinned. You're punished. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Once again, this is not a command to lay down and, and, and do nothing to oppose evil. We go back to the Old Testament prophets and see again and again where God is condemning Israel for being unjust to the poor, for, for treating the weak unfairly, and it, it, Israel's being condemned for that and for looking the other way when that happens and being called to love justice and mercy. And, and so God does not call us to just turn a deaf ear to this. We should be voices for victims and we should denounce abuse and, and ethnic oppression. But context here is when that happens, when that unjust evil happens, yours and my response matters to God. He is he's speaking to us about how we respond. And so he says in particular there in verse 19, this is a gracious thing. So God is giving grace in this. When we, thinking about God, being mindful of God, endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. It's making it very clear, unjust suffering will happen and, and there will be sorrow in the midst of that. It's not saying it will be easy in any way. But God's still at work in that and he's still calling us to respond differently from our society. When that evil happens, and, and the reason he can do that is because he's already given us an example to follow of, of suffering unjustly, and that's what he gives then in Jesus Christ. He says, because I've left you an example in, in, in Christ who, humanly speaking, suffers the greatest injustice. We know that in the justice of God, he is bearing the wrath for our sins, but in human terms, he has done nothing wrong. He has done nothing worthy of punishment of any form, and yet he is cruelly executed. And that's what's described here, his, him being crucified. And as Jesus is suffering, instead of threatening his killers or striking back in some way, it says he entrusted himself to the justice of his father. He believed in the one that Abraham said, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He ultimately rests in the justice of God. This is hard. This is hard for us to do. In our, in our society of outrage, if you are a victim in some way and you don't fight back and stir up wrath, something's wrong with you in, in our culture. If you don't seek revenge, if you don't at least get your, your social media posse to go after whoever it is that harmed you in some way, you're missing out on an opportunity. And yet the, the call here is 
that our response still matters to God as believers in Jesus Christ. This is where that exile status comes in. Standing out from the crowd, even in how we respond to injustice, even in, in what our desires are in that moment. Doesn't mean to pretend like nothing happened or that it doesn't, doesn't hurt in some way, but we do not strike back for some personal sense of revenge. The, the goal is not winning in this. In, in, in those moments, we are called in following Christ to long to see the perpetrators repent, to pray that God would turn their hearts, to hold out a spirit of forgiveness, desiring to forgive them when they repent, and, and also to know that there is justice and consequences as well for, for what they've done, that, that there are still consequences to experience for that. All of that is, is perfectly right for us, that, that we would desire their repentance, that we would pray for it, that we would desire to be forgiving of them when they repent, and that we would trust God to judge justly. That is the picture of contentment in the midst of the storm. That is the ability to, to rest in the midst of, of evil. David in Psalm 27, 3 says, Though an enemy encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. We know that we're destined for such things, but we also know that God is near, and he's calling for us to respond differently. To, to take the posture of exiles and to respond differently as, as strangers in this world. And, and ultimately, the greatest reason behind all of that is what we've already seen here in Second Peter, and that is know that you were bought and saved through suffering. The king did not come and merely pay a ransom of gold for our soul. The king of kings came and took on flesh and was beaten and nailed to a cross and suffered unjustly in order to redeem us from sin. The reason that he goes here is he's talking to these who are, he's already said in verse 19, who are suffering unjustly, he said it in verses 18 and 19, he then goes to Christ to say, listen, you, you've been delivered from sin through the suffering of Jesus Christ. It was the very unjust suffering of the Savior that bought your pardon. That, that redeems you from out of sin and gives you life. God's plan used human injustice for the greatest display of his glory and grace. Who am I to doubt that God cannot then accomplish great things for his glory and his good even through my suffering? That is unjust, that I, I don't like, I didn't ask for. I, I, can still, I can still trust that God can bring something to bear out of that. Just flip back to chapter 1. I just want to see this again here in chapter 1 when he says, again, he's talking to these elect exiles. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch all the things we've received. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept in heaven for you who are by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See what he's saying there? You have this glorious hope. You have this imperishable inheritance. You are guarded for eternity. You're going to receive something that is eternal. And what does it all come through? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which also means, therefore, that Jesus Christ died. 
that the, the resurrection encompasses the, the crucifixion as well. And so he's saying that, yes, you for a little while now will suffer, but know this, you have this hope, you have this mercy, you have this inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because of the suffering of Christ. You have so much. So don't, don't treat suffering as if it's just useless and agonizing and just worthless, but know that even in unjust suffering, God is accomplishing his good work. He speaks again of our suffering, again down in verse 11, the sufferings of Christ, mentions in verse 11, and then look at verse 13. After all that he said about what we receive from the suffering of Christ, verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Here's the last principle, the final one. Know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we should not be guilty of causing others to suffer from our evil. He says, you have all of this. You have this because of the suffering of Christ. Now, therefore, verse 13, prepare your mind in light of the suffering of Christ, in light of the salvation you've received. Therefore, be diligent, prepare your mind, set your hope on Christ so that you live differently. You don't live by the passions of your former ignorance. You're not driven by the things that the world is driven by, by the same sort of contention and evil and maliciousness and slander that the world is driven by. You live different. We of all people, knowing that we live as exiles in a land that is not our home, we ultimately will, will, our hope is firmly rooted in heaven. That is where our ultimate hope lies. We of all people, knowing that, should know and obey God's will, and we should not be taking part in these kinds of deeds of abuse, of discrimination, of oppression, of injustice. We should not only not be doing it, but we should be seeing it and calling it out for what it is. It is sin. It is evil. We must not give in the sexual abuse or oppression of others or taking advantage of those who are weaker than us. We are living testimonies to the righteousness and holiness of God. We must speak truth and live righteously as well. Even in our suffering and how we respond, not striking back. And when we do that, we, we emulate Christ. The, the, the great tragedy, and we've, we've all seen this when we've seen the headlines, every time there's another story about something happening in the church where the church sins in this way by some kind of abuse, there's professing believers who do those kind of things. We are, we are brokenhearted because we understand here is, here is the body of Christ now being linked with oppression and abuse and taking advantage of the weak. And that should not be. We are different. We are exiles. We live differently. And we ought not be driven by the passions of the flesh. And frankly, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, where we started, it says to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that even, even when you're suffering and even when they're speaking against you, and even when they're calling you evildoers, it goes on to say they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Ultimately, we are responding differently and we are not succumbing to the, the same in stuff, doing, carrying out the same stuff because ultimately we, we want to glorify God. We want to be vessels that testify to the gospel, that show people Christ, that love people, that come alongside, that are pure with people, that treat them with generosity and, and kindness and mercy and not injustice and oppression or abuse because we're living out Christ before them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking so directly to your children 2,000 years ago as they experienced suffering and had questions and tried to, tried to understand why they were being treated cruelly, having trusted in the king of all the earth, and now losing life, losing stuff, losing family. Father, thank you that as you've spoken to them, you have spoken to us, both preparing us to think well about suffering, but also reminding us how important our response is. We are called to be different, and Father, it is your spirit within us who testifies to us that, that this is a world that we are passing through and we are exiles here. Help us to, to keep in mind the eternity that lies before us. Father, there are people this morning listening to this who have suffered and who have, who have suffered at the hands of others, awful abuse, awful discrimination and injustice and oppression. And Father, thank you for speaking again of your love and your care for your body, that you are the one who is with your people, that you are the one who can bring glory, who can bring out of suffering things that we can look back on and, and, and somehow find reason to give you praise for what you have ultimately accomplished in our hearts and what you have done. And even, even when we can't, just like we saw last week in Job, even when we can't put nice, neat explanations on it, we, we believe that you are a good and loving God who never forsakes his people. And so we pray, Lord, for your mercy to flow down on those who have suffered, for your mercy as well for those who have been piqued in the conscience at some point today for past deeds. Lord, we pray that they would be convicted but also brought to a knowledge of the truth, knowledge of the saving and forgiving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would Guard our church, help us as a body of believers as Grace Bible Church in our desire to stand for righteousness, to live it out on a very practical level in purity, purity in thought and deed. Guard us from accusations that would find any kind of root of impropriety, of injustice, of oppression of others. Lord, may we extend the mercy and love of Christ to all that you bring to our midst. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.